Okay, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk a little higher ed in the highs and lows of Appalachia, West Virginia specifically. We're going to talk to our good friend, Bob Hutton. He has a lot of letters after his name. So that's Dr. Bob to you, teaches things like Appalachian Studies, Glimble. I can't say university, man. I still say college. How long did it take you to adjust to that? Because it, it's always been Glimble State College all my life. You know what? It didn't take me long to adjust to it either because they did it just about four months after I got there. Oh, okay. So it wasn't really hard for me to adjust. In fact, I, I like to tell people that's why they got university status because, you know, the finally I showed up. Not oh, true, though. I, I see the prestige thing. I got deep ties there. Both my parents went there for their undergrad. My daughter goes there. Um, great school. It, you know, let's just start right there because Glenville's a good example. It was actually the West Virginia Teacher College, if you go back in the history long enough. Small school, 1600-ish admission, something like that. Mm-hmm. Small school, but hasn't really had highs and lows. It's just kind of maintained and has done very well. As I understand it, there was a real low around 2006, but I've never gotten the full story on that. <laughs> West Virginia, for all its other upheavals and things, the college and university system has been pretty steady there. We've had some examples of it. Um, I went to college, West Virginia, which turned into Mountain State University, which turned into a debacle and got shut down. And they eventually moved West Virginia Tech into those facilities. We've had some bad spots. We have this Alderson Broaders situation going on now where they're decredited. And the flagship university, WVU, has got um, fun. They're not going to close down or anything, but they've definitely got some issues to deal with. What's the history of higher ed in West Virginia just generally? Because although there's been some of these, pro- it's been kind of pretty consistently steady, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's been certain key moments. Uh, I mean, if you look at the history of Glenville, for instance, as a sort of as a, what do you want, kind of a synecdoche of, of, of higher ed in, in West Virginia in general, there's certain key decades. Like, for instance, when were we founded? 1872, right in the middle of Reconstruction. I mean, what's what's driving that? Well, the fact that there's suddenly federal money for education. Um, and, and all of a sudden there's demand for teachers and a lot of people got together in the community here in Gilmer County and said, we need a teacher's college because we need teachers. So they, they petitioned the state for that and they, they got it. What's the, and then, so, you know, there's sort of a steady march from that point on the first few decades, the school had principals rather than presidents because the distinction between a high school and normal school was, you know, really fuzzy. And then you have the depression. And then uh, there's the because of the depression and because of the New Deal in re- reaction to it, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of money pouring into education. The the building that I'm in right now was built by the Works Progress Administration, WPA, and very important part of the New Deal. So, uh, and then I guess the next real high point would have been the '60s when all the when the the baby boomers started going to college, and again you had a tremendous amount of federal money. Coming into coming into some sometimes otherwise very impoverished states, um, and a president that two presidents actually that were very interested in West Virginia, 
um, that being Kennedy and Johnson, right? And not to mention it was the early salad days of a guy named uh, Senator Byrd, Robert Byrd, right? And um, he was always pretty good about getting that federal money pouring into West Virginia in one way or another. So um, it you could uh, a lot of people think it's a combination of pluck and luck, but quite frankly, it's it's a matter of demand size planning. Where, where there's some sort of demand, you throw the money there, you try to get the money there. And some of the more successful moments have been when the federal government really wanted to prime the pump of education. We're not in one of those moments right now. Right. Bob Hutton joining us. That actually gets us to exactly why we're having some of the problems we're having now, not just in higher education, but secondary. Look, you talked about the 60s. That's when my mom and dad went to school because they got federal teaching grants because there was a massive teacher shortage. Yeah. Both of them very poor. My dad was first in his family to go to college. My mom was the first woman in her family to go to college. And they went to Glenville on those federal grants. And that's how they got education in my generation. And here I am because of that kind of decision making. That's also part of the problem, though, because that generation is all retired now. That massive core of the baby boom teachers, we really haven't recovered fully from that on one hand. Then you had COVID on top of that. Those two events coming within about a 10 to 15 year period of each other, that's part of the bedrock of what's going on now. Then you talk about the funding and you have a triangle of bad for education, higher, secondary, primary, whatever you want to call it. That's a bad combination for anybody to have to deal with. It is. And also in the, in the next decade or so, we're going to have a real fall off in the number of students because in the alts, people uh, stopped having quite as many children, right? So uh, a lot of the politicians who don't like education anyway are going to use that as an excuse to, to twist the wash rag and um, get, take, take even more funding out of what we're getting in than, than what we have already. So there's it's sort of a critical mass of a lot of different problems going on, like you say. One of those problems, look, there's no way to extricate funding from education. There's just no way to do it. We also know that funding alone does not fix or make education better. So this is kind of the paradox that everybody's got to deal with here. To me, education is like any other problem, though. If you have a higher education institution, whether it's the size of a Glenville or the size of a WVU or a Harvard or a community college or whatever, that always is going to go to the leadership of that school. Look, you and me are sitting here talking about it. everybody knows what the demographics look like. They know the trends. They know that we just taught a whole online set of kids that they can go to school online. That's going to have an after effect. They know these problems are coming. A lot of this really does come down to the leadership of the individual schools and how they manage that funding, not just the funding. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, that's the problem we see going on up in Morgantown. Uh, there's there's been. I, you know, I used to teach in Tennessee where when around the time I left, um, the General Assembly and the governor's office were being really hands on when it came to higher education, uh, usually not, you know, not to a great, not to a great result. Uh, and, but in, in West Virginia, uh, you, you notice Governor Justice and I think a lot of prior governors, um, they, they typically allow schools to do as they will. There was a certain amount of independence for your state school. And uh, that has not worked to um, uh, WBU's advantage under Gee, I don't think, especially not in the last year or so. Yeah, Bob Hutton joining us. 
Give us a little consp- um, comparison here because we can get a little insular in West Virginia. I'll admit that. I think we can all kind of look in the mirror on that one. Sometimes we make things worse than they are. Sometimes we make things a lot better than they are. Use something like a Tennessee, a neighboring state, another state that has, you know, a lot of mountains. They got more metro areas, but culturally got some similarities. Just give me a comparison how West Virginia is or has been doing with higher ed compared to somewhere like a Tennessee, a neighboring state. I think West Virginia and Tennessee are pretty comparable when it comes to higher education. Um, For one thing, you have, correct me if I'm wrong, but WVU is both the state university and the land grants. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, Tennessee does a similar thing, unlike a lot of states where you got a UVA versus Virginia Tech or an Auburn versus Alabama situation. Um, With both Tennessee and West Virginia, the state university is also the land grant institution, and that's leads to a kind of an interesting identity crisis within any university. Um, in Tennessee, they had this, uh, when I would, most of the time I was there, they had this uh, work, it worked out so that there was the University of Tennessee system, which was about four or five campuses. And then separate from that, you had the Board of Regents schools, which was all the state regionals, plus all the community colleges under one particular board. And they kind of fixed that since then. Here in West Virginia, though, of course, each university, your Marshall, your Glenville, your your WVU, all your state schools, they, they're pretty autonomous. And so you don't have this one system president. Uh, I think even WVU Tech has a separate president from WVU, correct? Yes. So, you know, it, it's there's a certain kind of autonomy that you see in West Virginia that's, I suppose, based on the Virginia model, but it's very different than what we experienced in Tennessee. Yeah, Bob Hutton joining us. How much we look, we've all said it because it's just a buzzword now, you know, higher education improves lives, higher education improves the economy, you go to college, you better your life. Well, there's some nuance to that. What is the effect when you're just looking at Appalachian history, West Virginia a little more specifically, has it really had the effect we think it has? Has it had more of an effect or less of an effect? We, we say the buzzwords, but we also see, you know, the demographic bleed in the state. We also see the economic troubles. Is there a way that we're not perceiving it? Is it really helping or hurting or is it just kind of this neutral thing for those that make advantage of it? It's like everything else. It's what you make of it. I think it. Uh, the, the students that I've talked to about this, I've had a handful of students just in the two years I've been here who come here for a semester and they'll say, you know, this really isn't for me. Um, and, and I'll say, well, you know, if that's how you feel, then then don't go to college if you're not feeling it, right? You got to, it's like your football coach used to tell you, you got to want it. Um, and I, I don't remember really running into that acquiescence uh, 10, 12 years ago teaching at other schools. And I think people are starting to realize that um, something that, I mean, it's been abundantly obvious for 40 years now, uh, a bachelor's degree is not a golden ticket. Um, Now, for for those who it becomes a golden ticket, oftentimes that's going to be a plane ticket or a a U-Haul ticket, and they're going to leave the state. Um, So if you increase education's availability enough and enough, enough people partake in it, um, the uh, if they don't find the opportunities right here at home, they're going to move to another state. And so I do think that um, 
one of our one of the ironies of, of making uh, higher education so much more available and affordable in West Virginia, and I do think it's more affordable here than it is a lot of other states, is the fact that it has probably contributed to um, migration out of the states. Um, people with graduating with bachelor's degrees and finding opportunities in North Carolina that they or Virginia that they they weren't finding here, and that's a problem. Bob Hutton joining us. Is there any way that the higher education system in West Virginia could be a part of the solution to that trend? Now, obviously, if you give people skill sets and they can't utilize them, they go elsewhere. We know that, too. Are we utilizing our college towns? Are we utilizing the universities and the colleges that we do have? Is there a way, do you think, that we're not using what we already have to maybe try to retain those people in a better way, do you think? I think there's a pretty good example going on between places like Morgantown and Paramount where they'll they'll set up these very active sort of technological districts. Of course, this involves a lot of science, technology, STEM type uh, type learning that I know nothing about, but it seems to create jobs. Uh, and of course, you're going to see it. You end up seeing it up in Mon County more than you are in many other parts of the state. Uh, Southern West Virginia, a little bit south of where you're from. Um, they they seem to be kind of very gradually getting away from fossil fuels and kind of address a, kind of embracing sort of a, a tourism economy. Well, tourism economies generally don't require a tremendous number of college graduates to run them. It usually requires a lot of people who barely got out of high school to work service economy jobs. And it's sort of the problem that Western North Carolina has right now. Um, you gotta you, you can't just expect the the university to improve the the lot of the state it creates the opportunity but uh, it doesn't really create that many jobs other than the ones that are of course on the university the county i live in i mean obviously the university is the by far the largest employer except maybe for the natural gas company and i think we're yeah. slightly we employ more people than it yeah, I promise you on golly season, when you're on the golly river in September and it's up by about six feet, you don't want an academic guiding the raft. I, yeah, I assure you. <laughs> you want some guy who probably went to college for one year and he gives you the whole story about how, you know, summer teeth or whatever. And uh, you probably heard that saying. And um, that, those are skills that are not generally learned in a college. Although sometimes, sometimes they are. I mean, I learned how to canoe at college. Um, yeah. Very few people are going to go to college for canoeing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. This is why I think, as much as I hated it for my look, my dad was born in Montgomery. My my grandfather worked at Alloy for his whole career. I, I hated what it did to Montgomery, but this is why I think moving tech to Beckley was a very important thing for that region because now you will get those science-based kids and you will get some of that and some you know it may only be a, a percentage of them but it takes a few of them to kind of start hanging around in the area i i think that's an important thing and i think watching it going forward maybe i'm hoping a little too much here 
I do think long term, it'll be very gradual. You're not going to have like a Microsoft thing pop up or anything like that. But over the next 10, 15, 20 years, I do think that can make a very big difference in that community, especially when you look at kind of where it is. You got the New River Gorge stuff now. It's kind of the gateway, the next biggest large city. You could see where that moving a technical college, and that, that was a very well-respected engineering school long before they moved it. So I'm not just being a homer here. Yeah, That kind of stuff, I think it really does matter to a rural area that's really hurting in a lot of ways. I mean, look. Beckley has gotten big enough that it was pretty much screaming to have a college. I mean, there was already in Bible College. Um, but but to have a it, it's a school, it's a it's a town the size of the city, really, uh sizable enough to support uh, a good sized university. And I think it was the, the move was probably good for Beckley in some ways. And and look, here's the thing about Montgomery. Look where Montgomery is, it's halfway between Fayetteville and uh, Blue and Blue. Or, I'm sorry, Charleston. Correct. It's it's not that far from Beckley either. Um, it, it's within a corridor that's going to even if West Virginia might have a net loss of population in the next ten years, that area of the state is going to have a net gain. Yeah. And Montgomery is not going to completely lose its its entire reason for its existence. It's not going to go back uh, you know, to a state of somewhere like two or three of the counties just north of where I live that, you know, don't have any colleges or anything like that. Yeah. Um, they're, they're in a good, geographically, they're in a, a pretty good spot. And it's probably going to be a tourism-based economy. So in the, in the short run, I feel really bad for them. But in the long run, I, I think they should probably, you know, realize that other, they may have bunions, but other people don't have feet. <laughs> That's a great way to put it, Bob Hutton joining us. Yeah, I, I, my true freshman year, I went to College of West Virginia, which is the same buildings now that West Virginia Tech. Logan Hall, we were the first people to live in Logan Hall, the dormitory, took the plastic off everything. What's the, I'll tell you some stories about it, but I don't know the statutes of limitations in Raleigh County, so we'll skip that. <laughs> when you're talking to young people, um, because Glenville does get people from outside of West Virginia, there is culture shock. I mean, let's be fair. Even West by West Virginia standards, you go to Glenville and just look up that hill, and you're like, "What? Why did we put a college here?" Um, the culture shock is one thing. What do they think once they've adapted and kind of settled in a little bit? What's that outside perception? Because you see it, because you get these college students coming in. It's a little bit of a unique viewpoint. And then, what do they think about West Virginia and Appalachia as they go along? I've had more African American students in one semester here than I did in the entire 12 years I was at the University of Tennessee. Wow. Now, I'm really? not sure. I'm not sure why that what that says about UT. But at Glenville we have, like you say, a really diverse mix because we recruit so much um, out of state when it comes to athletics and also outside the United States. I've had students who've come to play golf here from Canada, Great Britain, uh, Paraguay, South Korea, you name it. Not just golf, but that's the one that's one of our, our, our more popular sports. And um, I'm sure for the students, it's it's an amazing culture shock. But um, a university, one of the, the key elements that a university needs is diversity and voices from beyond just the the uh, immediate area around where that university is. And that's that that work. That's just as true for Oxford University in England as it is for NYU, as it is for Glenville. 
And um, whatever culture shock that takes place, I think is is ultimately a net positive for the students, for the for the administration, and and I I can certainly attest it is for me as an educator. Um, I've I've really appreciated the uh, <laughs> the, the, the diversity we have here. Um, I just I mean I'm not saying UT didn't have it. It just never really filtered into my history classes there. Yeah, I'm Bob Hutton. I think diversity and people kind of recoil at that world in certain areas. Mm. But if you look at the history of West Virginia, you're an Appalachian history person. You know this. The two or three biggest migrations into West Virginian history were very diverse migration movements in a lot of ways. You had a lot of Eastern Europeans. You had folks coming out of the South that were um, African-American and others. It's always been a place where people who were looking for something better or had nowhere else to go, they would filter in. And those people are always going to be diverse because human struggle is a universal concept, right? Yeah. I don't see any reason why we can't do that again. We've done it before in the past. Folks just need to get over that diversity part because that's exactly who you need to be because that's who's going to want to come. And I, I don't understand the blowback against the, the very concept of diversity. Um, I, I don't I, I don't understand it. No. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, it's racism, Bob. And I said, well, no, maybe it is, but I don't understand it. I thought I understood racism. I thought I understood bigotry. I don't understand the the general blowback against the very concept of diversity uh, among an otherwise, you know, kind of coat and tie type crowd here in the 21st century. I mean, what's your problem? Seriously, you know, what 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 is their problem? Um, and that's that's what I think. What uh, even as, in, our, in our last days, when we have maybe three dozen students left, and we're basically um, teaching in a cave and I, I'm, I may be trying to teach history when it's no longer even a major or whatever. Um, one of the roles of the school is going to be asking part of the portions of the United States, what is your problem with what we're trying to do? Why, why have you been trying to stop us? Why do you persecute us? Because, you know, why do you, why, why do you, are you threatened by education? Now, I don't run into this here. I don't I've yet to run into that sort of attitude here in Glenville. But in the the near the more than 10 years that I've, I'm just saying in my 20-some years of teaching, I've run into it like crazy. Yeah, it's, it's people get scared and people don't like different and people don't like change. And I get it because I can't look, I, I left. When I, I, was about, I left when I was about 20 years old. I went in the military. I've been around the world a couple of times. I come home. People look at me like I'm different, even though I'm from there. I mean, it's a thing. I go to Walmart people because my accent's gotten soft too. Because you know, been gone too long. But after about the third day, the hills and hollers and yonders come back real fast. Mm. But I'll go to Walmart and people they'll they'll look at me because they're not sure who I am. It's it's a cultural thing, but it's also a little bit of intellectual laziness. But I think a lot of it is just a lack of perspective, and that's something I try to take up in my writing and other things because I've got to be outside of it, and I'm proud to come from there. And I work back in there and do things now. And I'm like, look, there's this big world out here that'll really, really like us. You just got to let them like us and yeah. try to approach it that way. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're talking some pretty broad strokes here, but that's they, that's very much true. Well, I mean, you're an educator. You got to educate to the lowest level. And culturally, there's just some folks that are at the lowest level of understanding there's this real big world out there. 
that will love this place as much as we love it if you just give them a chance to. But there's a couple of things you got to stop doing because they're non-starters for some other folks. It's just that simple. I mean, it's a broad brush thing, but it's also, we're talking about tourism dollars. We're talking about kids into our colleges. We're talking about careers and people wanting to come in and set up businesses. That's stuff that these folks consider when they go to spend their discretionary income. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Bob Hutton, finishing up on an education question, because that's what we're supposed to be talking about, and we yeah. got off on that. Um, what's something, because you're an academic, as just the audience and me, when we're watching the headlines, and edu- you know, people are going to debate the student loan stuff and all that, what are you looking for in news headlines in higher education over the next year or so? It's an election year, so people are going to be talking about it, things like that. What's something that piques your interest? What are you keeping an eye out for? Is it schools in trouble? Is it the enrollment? Everybody talks about enrollment. Is it funding? What are you watching for in the headlines? Um, I'm, I'm not sure what I'll be looking for in the next year. Well, in the next five years, I am. I do have a couple grim predictions. Um, some not so grim, but um, our our private four year institutions are in real trouble. Uh, look at the ones that have gone under just in the just since I've been in West Virginia. We've had two. One of them just this past week. Um, Aldous Aldous Brodus is that you pronounce it? Aldous and Broadus is how I said it, but those Broadus. people do it different, I think. Okay, well, if, if that's Aldous Broadus. That's, that almost rhymes as well, anyway. <laughs> and, of course, um, uh, Ohio Valley. Yeah. Which, uh, we lost, uh, I believe, in the, the fall, right after the fall semester of 2021. Um, both of them, I'm assuming, to be victims of COVID for the most part. Um that's that's a trend that began before covid i remember a handful of denominational schools down in tennessee uh going under uh Hiawassee, which was a methodist school um the availability of affordable education via community colleges where you can get your associate's degree and then hop in and get to the next two years at a university um that's going to make things really hard for our four-year denominational schools. So I wish them well. They're who we play ball with in the Mountain East Conference. We need them for, for competition, if nothing else. But um, I'm really concerned about a lot of these schools. Um, now, I've seen a handful of them try to build themselves up into universities at, You know, after being a college for 150 years taking on new roles a lot of the time in uh, medical uh, in the medical realm, sometimes by adding on a business school, you know, things similar to what we're doing right here at Glenville. Um, And sometimes that works for them. Sometimes not so much. Um, In the next four or five years, I see um, online education becoming way more prevalent. Uh, you were just saying how we have a handful of students, the, the age of my second oldest nephew, who've barely even experienced terrestrial schools, um, who are kind of used to online education. 
a lot of them are going to sort of expect it to come 10 years from now. And uh, that's definitely on the horizon. How the politicians are going to react to that, I'm not so sure. Probably probably uh, by throwing austerity at us at like usual. Um, and there's, I mean, and of course, in, in the, you, you talked about the, we were talking earlier about the, the upcoming election next year. Um, the, the general politicization of education. You know, when I was growing up, I hated school when I was in fourth grade, but you never would have heard a, a politician of any political stripe talking smack about education. They, they might have argued over the finer points of, well, we need to remove the asbestos of this one school or what have you. <laughs> but you never would have seen anybody go after education as a, you know, as a concept, like a Rottweiler. And that's right. That's very much what we have going on right now. Um, <clears throat> and um I think uh, the, the 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 argument, just the existential question of education, is going to become a more and more politicized topic. And uh, as as much as you as I you and I may be sort of dreading the the election cycle of 2024, I think we're probably going to be hearing a lot about education for that reason. So there's I'm anticipating a lot. And I'm anticipating a lot of headaches. I'm stocking up on my aspirin, but um, it's uh, it's still the best job in the world. Yeah, my uh, my father, who taught um, Braxton County High School, they were the original staff of the school. Um, he said, "Where else are you going to work nine months out of the year? Get weekends and summers off, make a good living, and you can live in West Virginia." And that's how he always put it, and do something that really, really matters. And, yeah. Oh, I mean. Low key, having summers off is worth ten thousand bucks. <laughs> no <laughs> argument, no argument at all. Bob Hutton, thrilled to have you. We'll definitely have you back. We could talk about this stuff all day. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you got going on, how they can follow you till we get you back on herd tell, probably after the semester because you get it right busy here in about three or four weeks. Yeah, especially next week. But um, you can always follow me on Twitter or whatever it's called now uh, at uh, <laughs> ampersand. Here comes Dr. Bob. Um, I have some other outlets for, for social media, but I think that's the one where I'm most active, and I think Andrew can attest to that. Um, it's the most fun one, at least. I'm also I'm, I'm working on a book on the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. That's, that's more of a Southern West Virginia uh, subject, but I, it's something I've been working on for quite some time. And it's it's so, with uh, our various debates about law enforcement these days, I think, potentially a very important topic. Um, I, um, that, and that's basically all I have to plug at the moment. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, the Baldwin felt shot said Hatfield last week was the uh, anniversary. Just had it here a couple of days ago as we're sitting right. on recording this. Uh, I, we, I was watching a, a movie with my family and they were, and there was a very, it was a Gilded Age type film. And he's like, go get, go get the, go get the detectives. And I just recall it. And they're like, well, I was like, oh no, that's a bad word where I come from. And I had to tell them the whole Baldwin Feltz thing and Drew Mountain had to walk them through the whole thing. So we'll be looking, we'll definitely have you on to talk about that. Those come. Uh, Bob Hutton, thank you so much, Dr. Bob. Appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for having me. I'll see you. Yes, sir. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.